This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors Mary about Anna how O'Connor. they Welcome came to, to tell us their Thank story. You. It's great to be here. Yes, and this is your first podcast. It's my first ever podcast. Well, there you go. Podcast virgin. <laughs> okay, well, we won't we won't be hard on you. Um, let me introduce you. Marianne O'Connor grew up in northern Sydney as the youngest of six children and was an avid reader and writer, filling every blank paper in her house with stories. When Marianne was 12, her father, Kevin, Kevin Bess, left a career in finance to become one of Australia's best-loved artists. Ah, and his perseverance and ultimate triumph inspired Marianne to pursue her own creative dreams. A marketing career followed, along with the completion of an education arts degree, and while studying, Marianne also wrote two books with her father about his art. Marianne's first major novel, Gallipoli Street, was published to acclaim in 2005, and I remember that very well, actually, being recognised as the number three Australian debut novel of the year. Wow. Marianne is here to talk to us about her latest book, and this is your second? Fourth. Fourth. Oh, wow. So mm. since then you've written... Worth Fighting For was 2016. Yeah. And um, Warflower was 2017. Of course. So I've had an 18-month hiatus and I'm moving from war fiction to historical. Oh, wow, fantastic. Mm. Okay, well, she's here today to talk to us about In a Great Southern Land. I mean, the world's most beautiful book. That cover is gorgeous, <laughs> isn't it? I'm so thrilled with the cover. I actually did ask if we could have something that looked a little bit like my father's paintings and it and it does actually so I'm thrilled with that. Oh wow fantastic mm-hmm. congratulations that's a great amount of work in such a short period of time isn't it? Yes it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's easy for me to say I could say that in a couple of seconds yeah but you have to do it. Yeah last year I think I worked most weeks seven days a week. Wow. Um, I really pushed it because I really wanted this novel to Seeing, I, I always wanted to write historical. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, Glibly Street, Worth Finding For, and Warflower were all based on history. Yes. Um, and it was inspired by family, you know, to talk about Anzacs and so on with my grandfather. But I really did want to move right back in time because I've always read quite historical novels. Yeah. And um, as much as I loved writing the other three, this was really special because I got to write about my ancestors. Yeah. Which I always wanted to do. Yeah. Okay. All right. I want to. I want to start from the beginning because we're all about stories here and how you, how you came to write this story. So tell me. I mean, it's you know, in the intro we talk about the fact that you've loved reading and writing, but tell me how that all came about. What was like growing? Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Wurunga, in northern Sydney. Beautiful leafy suburb. Very leaf, very bushy. Yes. Um, we had a very Catholic neighbourhood, so there was lots of children. Uh, so you, what, a family of six? Yes. We are very much the Brady Bunch. Yeah. My brother actually looked a bit like Greg Brady, I oh, have wow. to say. Oh, wow. Handsome. <laughs> 
can't say that about your own brother. <laughs> and I had like the curls, like the gold little curl. Oh, right. you know, so looked, you were like the little one. Yeah, what I looked like name? Cindy. Yeah, Cindy, really that's did. right. Yeah, it's yeah. quite tragic. But. Oh, there you go. <laughs> well, I'm from a family of six, uh, five girls and a boy, and my brother's the youngest. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually wonderful being in a big family. Isn't it? Yeah, it's really special. I would not have it any other mm. way. Yeah, I love it too. Yeah. It was a crazy upbringing though. I mean, we had so many kids in our neighbourhood. You'd have, you know, 15 kids on each side to play soccer or cricket or something, you know. So it was um, climbing trees and we're right near the bush. Yes. So I was always down in the bush and we used to play a game called Wars because yeah. I'm mostly boys which, of course, I didn't really want to do, but I would go and get captured within 10 seconds and they'd put me in a fort, you know, in the middle of the bush. So I used to spend most of my summer holidays sitting Waiting there, to be rescued. Making up stories. Yeah. That's what I did. I, I, you know, they eventually found me, but I'd be sitting there for days, you know, and go home at night and come back and get caught again. But I, I wrote stories. That's yeah. when I re- remember my earliest recollections of of making up stories, was sitting yeah. there in the middle of the bush and making up stories. Wow, what a beautiful environment to be telling stories. Mm. Um, and was it that all your siblings liked reading and writing or was it just you? Um, my brother James, who is – mum had six children in eight years, so oh. <laughs> we're all close in age. But James is uh, two and a half years older than me. He's a doctor, very intellectual, yeah. and he would read all the non-fiction, you know, yeah all the encyclopedias and scientific tomes and I would read all the fiction. And my mother was an avid reader of fiction, my father non-fiction. So basically we had this massive library and James and I were always reading. And um, What a wonderful environment yeah, to grow up in. It was great. Was it great? <laughs> but my other brother used to get annoyed and say, come and play Kingpin or, you know, come and play Chasings and we'd be like, head stuck in a book. Yeah. Um, So talk to me about your father. So it was a creative environment that you grew up in. Extremely, yeah. So my brother who's a doctor and my other sister both are artists as well. Right. And my... A doctor and he's also an artist. He's also an artist. Well, that's unusual. Yeah, he's pretty (laughs) unusual. Um, James Best, by the way, anybody knows him. He's quite well known. Um, And my sister owns um, Superfast Diet, so she's, you know, very creative. She's come up with this company and written books and so on so she's right. creative and um yeah we were all my brother was a photographer so you know we're all creative yeah but you had to fight for paper in my house yeah <laughs> i can imagine talk to me about your father yeah i was just going to say that we used to write on the telephone books oh wow so you'd get rip out a, a bit of paper out of the telephone book and you'd write on that because there was no paper um because everybody wanted to either draw or write so <laughs> wow yeah anyway oh my father um was the world's most beautiful man. So he's kind of hard to talk about because I get emotional because I adored him. But he was um, he was in the stock market and um, quite a senior position. And at the age of, I think it was 46, he decided to become an artist with six children. <laughs> and mum supported him, but she was really worried about it, obviously. And obviously. We, we didn't have money to burn. We were very middle class, you know, and had yeah. to be careful. And um, anyway, he was so determined and he'd paint all night and he just like me, like around the clock, really worked at it and really wanted it a lot. So he um, he ended up becoming in the top ten artists in the country for quite um, some time. Wow. And um, 
While he was still painting. Yes, yes, and he um, had sell-out exhibitions and um, he's featured all over the world now and, you know, he really was very successful. So it was a really good lesson to a 12-year-old girl. Yeah, it's just. <laughs> and again, such an, I know I've said unusual a couple of times already, but that's an unusual story for somebody mm. to leave finance when they have a family mm. of, well, they have a partner. Was your mum working at the time? Yeah, she was a school secretary. But, right. I mean, she actually was originally the secretary for Utsun, who designed the Opera House. Oh, wow. So, and my grandfather worked on the Harbour Bridge as well as being in Anzac. So, I think I'm the most Australian person in the world. <laughs> you are indeed. And involved in a lot of the iconic Australia <laughs> that we know. <laughs> so funny as I rattle it off. It's like, it's really bizarre sort of history. But we, we, we just seem to have dabbled within all these major events in Australia's history. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, comes through in the writing very conveniently. Yeah. And you're a family that got obviously got involved in community and arts. Your dad ended up earning um, an Order of Australia medal for his services to the arts and to charity. Right. He, he raised a huge amount of money for Smith family and Fred Hollows. Yeah. Mm. Extraordinary. Okay, so tell me about your career. So you loved writing from an early age. Yes. I thought I wanted to be um, something creative. I wanted to be an author, but mm-hmm. I kind of always thought that was impossible. Mm. And people don't usually say that, do they? What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be an author. That doesn't happen that much. Yeah, I did. Oh, you did? I, I was in, in love with um, the idea of being like Josephine March. I thought uh-huh. she had the most idyllic situation up in that attic, eat, eating the red apples and shimming down the tree to go put her stories in the mail. I was so romanticised by her. I, I, I really wanted to be her. And I also loved Anna <laughs> Green Gables. I know right. I was, that's one of the you know, it's historical ones again, <laughs> you see. I wanted to be these women, these feisty, passionate, talented women. You know, they loved them. And then she... Um, got under my skin for a long time. But when I finished my HSC, I wanted to go do communications at Macquarie, the film and television school, because I thought, I'll, I'll write for film, I'll write for television. And I missed out by half a mark. Oh. And they wouldn't let me in. And I tried. I appealed to the dean. And I was so mad about it <laughs> that it took me um, 12 years to go to university. <laughs> wow. Because you, you could have done something else. Oh, easily. But I was, yeah. I was stubborn about it and I was really annoyed. And so I, I was like, I'm going to go make money and travel the world instead. Not stuff, a bad thing, are sort of thing. But it was a much better choice for me. I think mm. everything happens for a reason. And I ended up travelling the world and as a backpacker. And really knocked the Cindy Brady out of me there, let me tell oh, you. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. It was All the big, comforts of home disappear. Yeah. And I was pretty spoilt by my dad too, so being the youngest and creative and I suppose, you know. And so how long were you backpacking? Uh, well, I, I went a few times, but a big one was um, seven months. Yeah. And um, that that really made me grow up, yeah. which was good. But it's, it all comes out in my writing because of... I've been to these places and I know what it's like to do it a little bit tougher, yeah. you know, which I think was a good lesson for me. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I think that that often comes out in the writing. Mm. Um, so were you working at the time? Yes, I owned a fitness centre, which is a bit unusual once again. <laughs> yeah. You are the unusual family. <laughs> I'm not going to say that anymore. We all know that now. Um, a bit odd. Yeah. Um, well, my sister went into fitness um, just from a business point of view and so I ended up buying a gym when I was 23 and I uh, sold that when I was I was going to say wow, but I'm not going to say that again <laughs> either. You bought a gym at 23, yes. so you had a bit business acumen. Yes, I was very, very interested in that. And then I moved into sales and marketing for the fitness industry and then into doing my degree and focusing on a lot more writing and marketing and lecturing Yeah. and a bit of environment teaching, or sort of all teaching and lecturing. But the whole time I wanted to write and then my sister-in-law got published 
Ah. That was the turning point. Yeah, you thought if she can do it, I can do it. Well, even though she's so talented, I sort of thought it's possible. Yeah. You know, of course. This is possible. And before that, I didn't think so. I, I actually tried to pursue music for a while and did an album, but it was pretty terrible. And I think I thought I had more chance of being the new Madonna than being J.K. Rowling, you know. Like. So you sing as well? <laughs> Not very well. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. I'm, I'm imagining Olivia Newton-John <laughs> and <cry>. a writer. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I try to. All right. Okay. I'll try not to imagine you in those um, <laughs> 80s leotards. I'll try not to do that. I did wear them. Anyway, oh, I can imagine. Sadly, sadly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got photos, I'm sure. Oh, no, they're all burned. Oh, good. Good, good. <laughs> so you've now decided you're going to put your hand to writing. Yes. And I oh, – well, actually what happened was the company I was working for closed down. And right. so I had three months where um, it was an environment con- – company and I, I had three months where I was just doing a bit of casual teaching. I had never been still, yeah. ever. You know, yeah. I'd never not worked or mm-hmm. travelled mm-hmm. and all of a sudden I was just doing one or two days a week with nothing to do but mm. wait for those teaching, casual teaching days to come in. And so I sat down and I thought, I'm going to write a book. And I opened a page in Word and I just wrote Gallipoli Street and I wrote that book in three months. <laughs> so hang on a second, had you been to uni by the Had you studied yes, writing? Yes, I'd studied literature. Oh, you had? Yeah, did a right. specialisation, literature, music and environment, but it was it was writing that I wanted. Right. Mm. Yeah. So you knew how to put a novel together? I'd started many and I'd written a lot of, I'd written a lot for other people, a lot of um, but marketing stuff, you know. And yeah. I, and of course I co-wrote Dad's books, but I, I, this story was just burning in me for a very long time and the first draft literally came out in three months, it just came straight out and it was a big book. And, That's um, amazing. What were you writing night or night and day, or are you just fast? I'm, I'm pretty fast, but I was sitting up till sort of nine, ten o'clock night. But I, it was a burning passion, and I had my grandfather, father, and grandmother's photo in front of me with a candle, and I, I have all his quite a bit of his war memorabilia that belongs to my mother. So I had his Gallipoli sword and his photos and this silk scarf that got given to him by the king and his discharge papers. I had it all around me with his photo and the candle, and I just wrote his story. That's what I wanted to do and always wanted to do it. I don't even know why. And um, it just came out, and then I sent it to every publisher in Australia, and it took three years to get published, and I had four major edits. Did um, Did you find an agent or you did it yourself? I did it myself. I had some terrible moments. Yeah. Anybody out there who's an aspiring author, I feel your pain. (laughs) Can you talk about that? Because we do have a lot of... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Aspiring authors. And, you know, by the time we get to speak to a writer, they're related, you know, they're published, it's, I mean, and for you it's your fourth book, but nobody sees the pain that comes with it. So talk to me a little bit about that, like the conti- continuous rejection. It was so hard. I mean, three years was a very long time. It's probably more like three and a half years. Right. Um, and You kept at it though. I, I am very stubborn. Yeah. If I can give anyone a piece of advice about getting published, be stubborn. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't take no for an answer. Because you will get no for an answer many, many times, mm. you know, and I certainly did. And um, so, tell me how that hard. process happened. So, you—I mean, three years is a long time to be rejected. So, you kept sending it. Were you sending it to the same people, or were you finding no? no. I just, tell me what you were doing. I, I googled every single publisher. Yeah, and one course. by one by one, I went through. Yeah, and um, anyone who published a book would have probably heard from me in that time. I also approached some agents. Uh, one agent, People would be thinking, oh, my God, Marianne O'Connor, oh, like, no. Woman. <laughs> Crazy as that woman. Yeah. Anyway, I just – you know what it was? I really believed my grandfather wanted me to publish that book. Um, it sounds a bit spiritual and hippie, but I really did. Mm. You know, I mean, he's long gone. Mm. But I – that kept me going. Mm-hmm. I kept looking at his photo going, not giving up, not giving up. Mm. And I could hear him, don't you give up. And I never did give up. And um, it was very hard though. It was hard to get rejected. And one lady, I rang her and she was really mean to me, this agent. I don't know why. and But she, she pretty much told me off and said I was completely disorganised because I couldn't rattle off every single person I'd approached because it was so many, and she got really angry, and I'm not going to waste my time. I've looked at the first page. It's not something I'd ever be interested in, and she hung up on me, mm. and I cried. Mm. <laughs> I don't cry easily. I cried, mm. and I really, really was upset by that, and I thought, one day you'll see me published. One day. Mm. <laughs> got very fiercely determined. But uh, instead of being a wuss and lying on the floor and crying and gnashing teeth, I which most got mad. most <laughs> most me mortals would do. Yeah, well, I did that for a while. <laughs> yeah, and then picked yourself up. And I thought, right. And then the next really dark moment was, um, well, prior to that, I had some good moments. So, um, one major publisher, probably should mention, um, gave me a very encouraging letter, and they said, No, well, you can mention them. I think that's good. I mean, well, it's well, good PR for nice. them. Well, yeah. yeah, it was Pam McMillan, and yeah. they were really kind. Yeah, and she wrote me a letter, and she said, Don't give up on this. We can't. It's not quite ready, but don't give up. And Isn't that fabulous? It was beautiful, that letter, and it really, really did encourage me. And I remember my brother saying further down the track when he was trying to tell me to give up. <laughs> yeah. I think I was driving him crazy. And he said, frame that letter and put it on the wall yeah. because that's, that's the achievement you've had with writing. Yeah. And I said, that'll never be enough for me. You know, and he's like, no, that's enough, that's enough. And, and you're beating yourself up. It's too hard. And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> so in that three years, were you reworking it yes. all the time? before yes. you? Okay, I got it. Yeah. So you, you were reworking it and sending it out to different people. Yeah. So yeah. if I got a rejection. So you like, were kind of doing uh, editing your own work. I was. Well, I also paid for professional edits. Okay, that's great advice for some listeners. Yep. Yeah. Um, first time I did, I paid for it. Mm-hmm. Second time, um, who paid for it? Somebody paid for it. Harper yeah. Collins. Harper right. Collins paid for it. And then the third time, um, they said, you'll have to pay for it yourself. Mm. We're not going to pay again. And that was a good edit. <laughs> mm, I can imagine. Yeah. And then finally, 
the, the major house that was going to publish me rang and she said, look, I've decided not to publish you. And this was after six months of final edit, of my final edit. You know, and she said, um, I think that you've only got one book in you. And that's a terrible thing to say to an author. It, you know, I've got hundreds of stories mm. inside of me. But really, you know, you're, you're one hit wonder. And that actually really did a number on me when I was releasing my second book, let me tell you. But mm. That's another story. But anyway, she said that and she said, I'm not going to publish you. And that was, that was the darkest moment of the soul. I, mm. I put the phone down and I put my head on the desk and I cried. I really cried. And my sister rang, barely coherent. And she said, oh, but you can't give up now. And I'm like, that's it, Linda. There's no one left. (laughs) And she said, I know somebody who works at Harlequin and she'll she'll read it. And I said, oh, okay. So she gave it to her and she liked it. That was Mary Rennie. And um, Give him a plug. (laughs) I'm giving her a plug because she's beautiful. And she gave it to Annabelle, who is my editor, Annabelle Blay, who walked in apparently to Subrock's office and put it down and said, we should publish this book. Mm-hmm. And Sue rang that day. And then amazingly, the other publishing house rang back and said, we've changed our mind. I had two people want to publish me within after a day. After all that After time. all those years. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's just such a good story for all those people out there that are writing, isn't it? It was incredible. And You've got I to be tenacious. With, well, you do. And I yeah. went, with, um, went with Harlequin. I've never regretted it. They've been wonderful no. and really supportive. I can imagine. Oh, amazing. I, I mean, Sue Brockoff and I go way back. Yeah, I she's mean, fabulous a beautiful people. lady. Yeah. And really supportive, really believed. Mm-hmm. And I've now got Jo um, Mackie, who is, she's like my champion. She's really supportive and amazing. So I was so lucky. It was all meant to be, I think. <laughs> now, talk to me about when you're just sitting down to write. Is it a style that, because you're unusual as a writer. It's an unusual story that I'm hearing today. It's not like the many others I've heard. But is it that you, it's now your full-time job? Mostly. I still do a bit of marketing work. Right. Okay. It's, it's, it's almost full-time. And is it like you wake up, you know, and you walk into your writing room or whatever at nine o'clock and finish it? I mean, what's the discipline of writing? How do you approach it? Um, I was heavily disciplined last year. Yeah. Because um, you're putting out, I mean, these are big bodies of work. Yes. And you've got to find the inspiration and the silence. My, my big issue at the moment is I have teenage boys. They've yeah. just turned 14 and 16 and they're loud. Yeah. <laughs> so last year I got to a point where I really just couldn't handle the doof doof music and this yelling at the PlayStation. So I, I went to the coffee shop yeah. and J.K. Rowling style and I went and sat there and I know a lot of people that write. Yeah, yeah it was really shop. good. Yeah. Really good. I got that final, the final sort of 20,000 words done in yeah. a week, I think because I just went every day. And, and do you still yeah. write as fast as you wrote your first one or have you learnt from there in terms of style? I write really quickly. You do? When I'm on a roll. Yeah. Um, but at the moment, um, because I've had so much going on at the moment because it's yeah. launch season, um, it sort of takes me the whole morning to get back into the story. Mm-hmm. So I kind of reread the past few and I flip through the whole story and then I, then I start and then by that afternoon, I'll churn out, you know, 2,000 words, but it sort of takes a while to get that momentum back and the yeah. headspace and it's like you're falling back into a dream that you were having. Like if you woke up and you were dreaming, you liked your dream, but you're trying to fall back into that dream. Yeah. It's like that. I'm trying to fall back into the dream. Oh, well, that's a lovely description of it. <laughs> so with your first book, uh, Gallipoli Street, um, it went – tell me about the launch of that because that was – that again is unusual. Oh, it was so emotional. Um, I signed the contract on my husband's birthday. 
mm-hmm. and happened to be back to Hornsby Day. And we went to this reunion night where the whole of anyone who ever lived in Hornsby had come to the RSL and it was like thousands and thousands of people. So all these people I've known all my life were there. Oh, wow. Happened to be that day and my husband's birthday. And we just had the most fantastic night. Everyone was just so excited about this book contract because everybody I grew up with knew I wanted to be a writer. It was like everyone's celebration, it was, yeah. especially my mum. She was so happy and um, dad had passed away by then sadly but mum was just, being such an avid reader, she was just so thrilled. Yeah. She, was she really, must be. It was beautiful actually. So that was really exciting and then for the book launch, because my aunties and uncles were all getting very elderly um, and this is about their parents, Yeah, they, they came, the ones that were still alive and Aunty Iris, Aunty Iris went through World War II as a young bride and her husband was killed when she was seven months pregnant. Oh. So my cousin Daphne's, um, you know, she's about 70 now, I think. And it was just such a huge family tragedy. And that's the second book has got a lot of that story in it. And, um, and actually, Gallipoli Street too, when I think about it. But she came anyway yeah. to this launch and she had cancer. And she was really worried because it was something like 35 stairs or something. And she practiced every day being able to walk up and down stairs so she could come to that book launch. And she came to the book launch and got up those stairs and she and mum lit a candle for her husband who died and for my grandfather. It was very emotional. That's a beautiful story. It was so emotional. She had never publicly talked about him because she remarried, you know, and had other children. And she said, I need to do this before I die. I need to, I need to publicly speak of him mm-hmm. so I can say goodbye. And it was, oh, really, I'm going to get you all teary. Do you know, <laughs> I know. And you're getting me all teary. <laughs> do you know what I'm thinking? You come from a large family and you're going to have lots of stories forever, aren't you? I've got so many stories. You've got so many stories. I can't believe that somebody called you a one-hit wonder. Oh, that was quite a hard thing to hear, let me tell you. But I can imagine. Quite like okay. 56 first cousins. So the gra- uh, in a great <laughs> southern land, tell me what this is about. Now, this is inspired by my ancestors. So I, I would, yes, I, I, I can imagine. <laughs> and I always wanted to write this one um, because it's extraordinary to me that they did this. Mm. So my ancestors, this is my mum's direct line back, came from County Clare in Ireland in a little village on, on the river. And um, I went back and researched it researched everything I could find out about them, which was quite a bit because my cousins had done a bit, so it was good. And I tried to pull every detail I had into this. So they came out um, in the mid-1800s and they had land land grants, but they had to pay back from what I can understand. But they were clever. They had an education, which was really rare. And that was a kind of a big thing about them. And people used to come from far and wide to listen to them read from the newspaper and things like that because they had this education. Because they were literate. Because they were literate. And um, it was was really interesting for me going back and then I I walked through the whole journey of what it must be like to get on a ship to the other side of the world. A lot of these clippers And leave everything you know. Everything you've ever known. But... It's I happening do, now. Yeah, I finally do understand why. I have a huge sort of yeah. uh, insight into refugees, you know, because yeah. Ireland was in a terrible, terrible state. Exactly. We had 300,000 Irish emigrate between that time and the early I often wonder what makes you do that, uproot your family. Yeah. I mean, have we got no empathy? You have to think about why this is happening. It's not like people want to come here to go to Bondi Beach. Yeah. Well, 300,000 Irish just to Australia. 
exactly. You know, it's almost like they, the whole country was sort of so decimated by the potato famine and, and the disease that was so rife. They were starving. Yeah, and, the, and the, the Crown were taking their other crops too. They mm. were being starved out of Ireland. That's mm. what was happening. And like the most pitiful conditions and so many of them driven into workhouses. And Why else would you risk your life exactly. to flee? I know. And so I read all about our ancestors. Their parents had been killed by the plague, mm. we think the plague, but they'd been killed anyway. And so they came out together, all the brothers and sisters and wives and husbands and children all came together. Did they all survive? No, little girl Sarah died on the yeah. way over. Yeah. Um, Which is quite common too. Yeah, I know. It's incredible. This story was so incredible. But when they got here, and this is, the whole book is based on this, when they got here they had to eke out a living. And so I, I show the reader what kind of livings you could do. You know, you could live in Sydney town and, you know, it's pretty rough old town at that mm. time and eke out, mm. you know, what you could. Or you, you went to the land, which is what they did. Mm. So um, they went to Orange and Parks. Great story, Marianne Connor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, sorry, I've mispronounced your name, Marianne <laughs> O'Connor. Um, it's called In a Great Southern Land. Congratulations. I Thank am you. so pleased you came in to chat with us today. I'm so pleased too. Thank you. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.